Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, John, welcome to the show. It's good to have you here. Hey, thanks for having me. So as I was telling you earlier, it's not often we get rock stars on our show, but it's uh, it's good, right? I thought you'd have a guitar and some, you know, goth <laughs> makeup on and so on. You are way too kind. Like I mentioned, I'm not sure if I'm a rock star, but uh, I appreciate the kind words. So where are you at the moment? Are you at, uh, I'm guessing you're at work based on the background. Yeah, yeah. I'm at the University of Chicago and I'm sitting in my office here at the one of the most beautiful campuses in the world. So is it snowing in Chicago right now? It snowed this morning, it snowed but this morning. Uh, we're having a little bit of a reprieve, but we do have snow on the ground. Snow on the ground. So it's a typical Chicago winter. Typical Chicago winter. I ask myself every morning, why the heck do I live here? <laughs> so why aren't you on the West Coast? <laughs> somewhere warm like Florida. It's a good question. So, you know, occasionally I do go to the West Coast. I'm the chief economist at Lyft. Yes. And before that, I was a chief economist at Uber. So... I do go to the West Coast uh, fairly often, but my academic roots are really right here in terms of, I think, like a Chicago economist, yes. and it's because I am a Chicago economist. Yes, and you have your social network and your professional network there. That's right. It's hard to replicate that when you move. That's one of the difficulties that I've seen for professionals when they move. They forget there's this institutional base that they created, which is very hard to transplant and recreate. That's right. That's right. Okay, so let's get into this. Right, We have a lot of interesting to discuss because your work is interesting. Mm -hmm. I want to start with something that we take for granted, the definition of the word scaling. It may be competing with the word strategy for the most overused and misunderstood word in business today. So let's start with the definition of scaling and why this definition matters. No, I think you're right. When I, when I think of scaling, when I ask someone, a business person, a, a policymaker, what does scaling mean to you? If I ask 30 of them, I might get 30 different responses. Yeah. And it's a little bit like creativity or critical thinking that way. It's, oh, innovation. Uh, yeah, a lot, of, uh, a lot of different thoughts. So the way I think about scaling is I find a result in the Petri dish, or I, I find a result in Chicago. Yes. What is the potential of that result, both to horizontally scale? And what that means is it worked in Chicago. Does it work in Denver? Does it work in London? Does it work in Paris, et cetera? That's horizontal scaling. And does it scale vertically? And what I mean by scale vertically is within the same input market. So if I want to grow bigger in Chicago... Yeah. I'm going to be drawing from the same input market. And can my idea grow in Chicago? So scaling is about both horizontal growth yes. and vertical growth. And this applies to any idea. Oh, absolutely. So when I worked in the White House, we had a lot of examples where we can get one part of the country to adopt an energy conserving technology, yes. for example. 
but we couldn't get other parts. So we, we couldn't horizontally scale. So the same result holds in policymaking, in the business world, and in the ivory tower when we explore our various ideas. Now, what's interesting about this is we haven't mentioned this word yet, but it all comes down to the sample that we initially used when we ran the first trial to determine if something worked. So something can work and something may not scale. Let's talk about that because that seems to be the big issue here. Yeah, I, I think it's two things. I think it's the sample and I think it's the situation that you've generated your data within. So the, the sample is pretty clear. You can think about McDonald's. Yes. And McDonald's in the late 90s uh, introduced a new sandwich called the Arch Deluxe. And the CEO of McDonald's put all of his weight behind the introduction yeah. of the Arch Deluxe. Yeah, I remember and, that actually. Yeah, exactly. The evidence that they had back then was from focus groups. And those focus groups, of course, are hamburger lovers who come into the lab or come into the room and they love everything McDonald's. That's, yes. that's why they're there, right? Yes. Now, the problem is, is that that small group of people is not representative of the larger group that you're trying to sell the Arch Deluxe into. And that's exactly where you're right. It's the sample is part of it. And the sample typically is the representativeness of the group of people who you've found that your idea has voltage yes. ends up not being representative of a larger group that you're trying to scale to. Now, the other side of that same coin is the situation. And what I mean by that is, so I started a preschool or pre-kindergarten school here in Chicago for three, four and five-year-olds. And the school was wildly successful. So in 2014, I started to talk to policymakers because I told them I want to scale my school. I want the whole world to have my school. And what I found is that policymakers were at first pessimistic because they said, look, your program will never scale. And I said, well, why don't you think it will scale? And they said, it doesn't have the silver bullet. And yes. I asked them, you know, what, what is a silver bullet? Yeah. And they couldn't really define it. Yeah. They were like, well, we don't know, but we think it's fidelity or something else, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But what I found is in the original design, I needed good teachers. So a non-negotiable to my program is I need a set of good teachers to be in the classroom. Now, when you scale that up, you're scaling to a situation that just doesn't exist. And what I mean by that is it's one thing to hire 30 good teachers, yes. like I did in my research, but it's a totally different thing to hire 30,000 good teachers in and around Chicago. It, it just won't happen. So the situation that I was doing my work in, I was able to get good teachers. But when I scale that up, Humans don't scale. Yes. So it's very difficult to get as many good teachers as I need. 
So you're just not going to have a scalable idea here. That's what I mean. That's one example of the situation matters too. So let's unpack that for the audience, right? Sure. So you have a, a concept, an idea, an hypothesis that works under certain circumstances. And the circumstances are hard to replicate at scale. That's 100% right. So in my book, The Voltage Effect, in this chapter, I talk about restaurants. Yeah. And I talk about the abandonment of millions of restaurants that were great with one restaurant, but when they went up to 20 or 30 or 50 or 100, they failed. Yes. And they failed because their secret sauce was the chef in the original restaurant, and they could not replicate the magic of the chef at scale. Now, the restaurants that make it, they made it at the beginning because of ingredients yeah. that could be replicated at scale. Yes. So those are ideas now that is it the chef or is it the ingredients? If, you, if your magic from the very beginning is something that you just can't replicate at scale, you don't have a scalable idea. But if your magic can be replicated at scale, now we're in business. We, we do have one idea here that you can actually scale. That's a good example. I'm a big foodie, so I always go to restaurants run by famous chefs. And you see this all the time when they just start off and when they're involved in the restaurant and they're putting together everything and they're checking the dishes and so on. The food is amazing. But come back five years later when they've got a private equity firm backing them and they've opened up like 50 places, you go to a restaurant and there's some unknown chef and you think, I just paid $50 for hamburger. And this tastes worse than McDonald's. But it's true because, and what you say is a powerful example of this is that the initial thing that made them successful cannot scale. You can't have that one chef in 50 locations. I think that's exactly right. And whenever the unique or secret trait of our idea is a human, it is very difficult to not only replicate that human at scale, but also to teach other humans to be like that human. Yes. So it's, you really need to go back to the lab. If your idea depends on 50 different chefs, won't work. You need to go back to the lab and say, can we produce a great restaurant without the constraint of having a great chef? And look, if you can't, then great. Just stick with one restaurant and you can have a great life. One chef, one restaurant, okay. one great life. But just don't waste and throw money at an idea that never had a chance to scale to begin with. You know, when people listen to this, they think, well, that's very theoretical, but it's not theoretical because I was looking at the average valuations of different businesses once. And I noticed that the average multiple you pay, the average multiple of revenue or net operating income you pay to acquire businesses for consulting firms and law firms was the lowest on average. And I thought to myself, whoa, how is that possible? I'm a consultant. But then it makes perfect sense because if you lose the rainmaker who brings in the money, you lose everything, but also you can't scale that rainmaker. You can't get 10 of him. You can't get five of him or her. You're 100% right. That's a great example of humans not scaling. And guess what? The market has recognized that. 
I know. I mean, I was looking at this investment banking multiple and I said, wow, all these investment bankers know this. These are really smart guys. Yeah. But think about the implications for how a consulting firm or law firm should structure itself and run itself first if it wanted to avoid the scaling problem and then get the highest multiple. It would be a profoundly different way in terms of what it took to the market as that secret sauce that it was selling. You're exactly right. That's a great insight. Your, your point is 100% correct. So let's shift to policy. In your book, the latest book, The Voltage Effect, you give the great example of the D.A.R.E. campaign. Let's talk about yeah. that because I didn't know it didn't work because when I was growing up, it was everywhere. And I thought, <laughs> wow, this is a brilliant campaign. I mean, Nancy Reagan is endorsing it. <laughs> um, when I worked in the White House, Nancy Reagan would bring us in cookies. Yeah. This, this is one of the nicest people who has ever walked the earth. Wow. And in the mid 80s, I was in high school here in the States. Yeah. And I can still remember Nancy Reagan sitting in the Oval Office, looking into your television tube, saying, just say no. And she would say there's an epidemic about teens using drugs. And we must end this epidemic. Just say no. Um, great person. Yeah. Great heart. Just she's on the wrong side of this one. So I can turn back the clock. And there was a government official who came into our high school. And they gave their spiel about just say no, trying to convince everyone not to use drugs. And I looked at my teacher and I said, this isn't going to work. And you can say, well, what's it? This is a social inoculation yes. program. That's an information campaign. It's an information campaign trying to convince teens to just say no to drugs. Information. Okay. My teacher looks at me and says, well, John, you might be right, but they say they have data. Lo and behold, when I dug into it, they did have data and it was pretty good data, actually. It would be a great story if I yeah. could end here and say they had 10 people in a treatment group and 10 people in control and they were wildly enthusiastic about a really small sample. That wasn't the case here. They had 1,777 people in this initial experiment in Honolulu. Wow. And it showed voltage. What I mean by showing voltage is it, it showed an effect. And unfortunately, if they would have tried it again, and again, they would have found that it didn't work. Just add in something for the audience. And they say, try it again, you mean the pilot? Absolutely. Try the pilot the key thing. again with, with the same population of people. Pull a, pull a different sample from that same population Try to replicate it. And then if it replicates, try it again. It really only takes two or three replications. And then you can be really confident that you have the truth or you have a program that works. They didn't do that. They took the initial results to be the truth. And then they ran with it. And they spent millions and millions and millions of dollars all kinds of time. Look, Nancy Reagan could have been working on something else yes. all this time, something that actually worked. Exactly. Um, 
she did. So then they tried it in LA, didn't work. Tried it in Denver, didn't work. Go back to Honolulu, doesn't work. That's what we found after the fact, that the data were simply lying in that original study. They should only be lying 5% of the time. And this was one of those 5%. They were lying. But here's the interesting thing, right? And when you say lying, no one had malice. It's they incorrectly, well, they didn't replicate the, the trial. That's the issue, right? They didn't replicate the, the trial. That's the first issue. They didn't recognize that you might have just gotten unlucky yes. with that draw of data. That draw of data was not representative of even that population you were drawing from. It was just a special, it, was, it wasn't nefarious. Uh, so absolutely. It, no one is trying to book, do anything I wrong. I talk about nefarious. Yeah. And I talk about Elizabeth Holmes and fake it till you make it. That's a duper. Yes. And dupers give us false positives too. This was not that case. Nancy Reagan was not a duper. No, she and, meant well. She believed the data. It's yeah. just that one trial was done. Now, I want, I want to build on the story because it's very interesting. When it was shown to not work, why did it keep on going? Well, they didn't show it till a lot later. Uh, it, it was already up and running. And then there were a few more tests of it later. So it was years later. And this is a typical government program where you put it out there. And once you put it out, it's hard to reel back in. And it's hard to reel back in because you have vested interests. You don't really find out if it's working until maybe five, seven years later. And then when you start finding out, you have these entrenched people who are getting yes. economic rents from it. And it's really hard to cast it back. And, and, and that's a big difference between government and firms. So in many cases, in a firm, it's much easier to bring it back. Yes. Where in, in government, it's difficult and it takes a lot longer time period to bring it back in. So in this particular case, you had all these sponsors we'll call them influencers to match the Instagram generation, but you have all these big names who are endorsing something. And because big names are endorsing it, it seems unlikely that other people are going to challenge it. That's right. And so if you've got, you know, 17 senators who are powerful, you've got the vice, you've got the president's wife, you've got the vice president backing it, you've got major corporate sponsors backing it. The voice of dissent gets drowned out. I think that's a great point. And also add a little bit of psychology, like confirmation bias, for example. Yes. And, and that's when they start to get some signal back that it's really not working. Confirmation bias means, ah, you know, that yeah. that was just a, a bad draw of data. That's not the truth, it, you know? And then you get a little bit of a good sign. You're like, see, yeah. that, that's, that, that's, that's it. And it's this herding mentality or what, what economists and finance people call information cascades. You have people who don't really know jumping on board and saying, you know, this is a great program and I, I want to be part of it. So every psychological bias you can think of is also working in favor of let's keep the train rolling. And one thing I've seen when I used to be a partner and I'd give an executive bad news and bad news usually means you have to change what you are doing. One of the things I'd keep in the back of my head is I would ask myself, if I give this executive the news, how much rework is it for him or her? Because I find if there's more rework required, the less willing they are to listen to me. Yeah. 
If I tell them this is absolutely going to fail and cost you billions of dollars, but if giving them that news means they have to totally reorganize the entire division over three years, costing hundreds of millions of dollars and putting their credibility on the line, they don't want to listen to me. I'll, I'll tell you what, humans respond to incentives and incentives come in both benefits and in the cost side. And if something is more costly for someone, they're less likely to do it. Yeah, I think that applies to everyone. I mean, if you tell someone, you know, I see this a lot in relationships where the wife is telling the husband to do something, but she doesn't realize it means work for the husband. So he doesn't want to do it. If it's just something he could do in five seconds, he'd change. But it's going to take him weeks to figure this out. He's never going to do it, right? It's like a a different version of... You need to align incentives, right? And once you align incentives, then voila, you begin to see some... um, some support of your dreams and what you want to happen. Yeah, I'm going to tell you an interesting story, which is the first time I interacted with your work. We're brought in by the Internal Revenue Agency for a country. And they had done an interesting analysis whereby they had followed the typical model of penalizing people who tried to illegally evade their taxes. And someone in the department, a pretty smart lady, had figured out that the actual cost of pursuing these people was so high that when you'd go out there and you'd win a judgment of $20 million plus penalties, it's actually not worth writing about because it was costing the department so much to pursue these people. And then they had this policy which said that what if we tried something different? What if we incentivize people to pay their taxes on time and not cheat? And they ran an experiment whereby they reached out to taxpayers, small business owners and business owners, and asked them to come in and did a focus group for them. And it was so promising because everyone said, yes, we love this plan. If we pay early, we'll get money. And one of the mistakes they made to cut a long story short is they didn't realize that the people who voluntarily come into the offices of a tax department are the people who are likely to pay on time anyway. (laughs) So it's free money to them. I'm going to pay early anyway. So sure, I'd like money. They have no problem coming in because their books are clean. (laughs) 100%, 100%, 100%. Right. So that's an example because they had followed something that the UK had done where they were using yeah. nudging techniques to modify behavior. But yeah, the sample was incorrect. And it never scaled because as soon as you started running the tests with real data, it wouldn't work. The people who you want to pay are never going to pay anyway. Yeah. And that's the mistake you make when you look at the wrong sample size. But let's switch back to ideas that scale. How do you know an idea is going to scale? What are the telltale signs? What are the attributes? Yeah, absolutely. So, so in the book, I talk about five particular vital signs that every scalable idea will have. And vital sign number one is it has real voltage. It, it's yes. not a false positive. Um, vital sign number two is you have a representative population in terms of the people who you've tried it on are representative of the larger population. John, I'm going to interrupt Um, you here for a second, just for the sake of the audience, maybe explain to them what voltage means again. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an important one because it's a new term and I want people to, to follow us as we speak. Absolutely. So I want you to think about voltage effect as the effect that happens when you go from the small to the large. So a voltage drop is when I find a great result in the Petri dish, 
a mountain of a result. Yes. And then when I scale it, it turns into a molehill. That's typically what happens with ideas. Ideas typically have a huge voltage drop when they're scaled. So I'm just going to make sure that's clear for everyone. So it's an idea that works in a small environment, but when you scale it up, it just cannot work. Exactly. It just falls apart at scale. Like the example of trying to replicate Gordon Ramsay across 50 restaurants. Exactly. Okay, that's good. So it just cannot scale. Got it. Okay, good. And, and my, my vital signs give you signatures of ideas that just won't scale. They give you these hurdles yes. that your idea has to jump over. And then you have the vital signs in place. So your idea has vitality and it has a chance to scale. You still need to execute. Yes. But, but at least you're executing around an idea that has a chance. Yes. Okay. So vital sign number three is the situation. And what that means is make sure that where you generate your idea or where you uh, test out whether your idea has any voltage or any uh, impact is representative of the situations that you're scaling to. And a lot of times we forget about that. We, we yes. do think about people, yes. but a lot of times we forget about situations. So that's vital sign number three. Vital sign number four is understand spillovers. So this vital sign is, is very rich and very deep in that there are four major kinds of spillovers. And you should take care to understand what are the spillovers or market-wide effects of my idea that can either cause really high voltage at scale. So think about Facebook yeah. and, and network externalities. So Facebook is a great example of in the small. So if only 100 people have Facebook, it's not a very valuable service. Yes. For those hundred people, right? But if a hundred million or, or a billion or two billion and all of your friends are on Facebook, it's called network externalities that every extra person added to Facebook makes it better for you. So that's a kind of good that has these great properties that when you scale, you get high voltage. That's that's one kind of spillover yes. I talk about. And then of course, the, the last vital sign. I've been talking about benefits, 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 benefits. Yeah. But as a Chicago economist, you have to bring in the supply side. And does my idea have economies of scale or does it have diseconomies of scale? And what that really means is as I grow bigger and produce more, does it become cheaper for me to produce per unit or does it become more expensive per unit? Now, what's interesting is in the business world, most ideas, like you talk to Elon Musk or yes. talk to Travis Kalanick or talk to the great uh, Jeff Bezos, they will start with the supply side. Yes. And they will start by talking about economies of scale because it's really a competitive advantage if you're onto an idea that has economies of scale. Whereas governments, tend to talk about benefits 
Yeah. And how are the benefits distributed? Are they equal? Do, do the people in my voting district receive these benefits? And as we grow bigger, what happens to the benefits? It's really interesting the way the government basically eschews the supply side, but business tends to start on the supply side. And then they say, can we build a demand around this great, these great supply side features? It's interesting you say that because it cuts to the heart of every single business discussion you look at. I mean, I was, if you go to financialtimes.com today, and if you take the top 10 articles, it's all about economies of scale. Exactly. They're all talking about, should I open this gas field? Should I build a plant in China? Should I withdraw from Vietnam? Do I sell enough cars to get my you know, unit cost of production down? And the assumption is that if I can do that, I then have that marginal difference in costs that I can use to compete against my competition. And you're right, governments, because I did a lot of work for governments, they almost look at it as, as if, how do I get the benefit to a constituent who's gonna keep me in power so I can keep the cycle going? Absolutely. And then I'm going to try to get other people to pay the taxes. <laughs> yes, <that's right. laughs> I'll worry about the supply side later, right? <laughs> yes. yes, someone else's money is the best form of money. <laughs> so coming back to each of these um, uh, attributes and, and principles you put together, let's talk through each one. I'm going to put out some examples here to make sure the audience can follow it and they can use it and they can apply it to their own decisions. Let's take the one of whether an idea can scale into a situation. Right? I was reading about Netflix recently. And obviously, Netflix was very successful in the United States. They built this library of content to which they own the rights. And then they realized when they're trying to grow in Asia and Europe, the Asian and European governments said, hold on a second here. If you want to buy content here, you can't own the rights. You can license it. Now, that's a problem for Netflix because of its, the way it's set up. Is that an example whereby it's not scaling into the situation? Absolutely. A hundred percent. So... I think about the situational features as in when I'm going to a new market or a new group of people, is there something either by law or regulation or there might be constraints of the labor pool that just don't allow me to provide that good at the same low cost that I'm providing it in other markets? So one thing I talk about in this chapter is smart thermostats. Yes. Now, smart thermostats have been all the rage because these are thermostats that are put in people's homes and they moderate the temperature in the home in a way that allows you to save money yeah. and it allows the world to save carbon emissions. Yeah. So it's like a win-win. It, it moderates the temperature when you're gone, when you're sleeping, when you're entertaining and everyone's better off. So. This idea comes about and the engineers give an estimate of the great gains from the smart thermostat. And they have to make an assumption about the user of that smart thermostat. Yes. And the assumption that they make is in America, I think of Commander Spock. Yeah. Who is this unswervingly <laughs> rational economic I agent? Like who can solve a second order partial differential equation. Now, these are a lot of words, but this is a person who never makes a mistake and always does the right thing. That's what the engineers assume. Yes. In reality, 
you are selling that smart thermostat into a bunch of Homer Simpsons. <laughs> and if you don't know Homer Simpson, Homer Simpson is a bumbling fool who makes a mistake at every turn and undoes a lot of the good stuff that should be set up for him. So we do a, an experiment across California where we send out a bunch of these smart thermostats to households. What we find is a very, very tight zero effect for the smart thermostats. What that means is the households who got the smart thermostats showed no gains at all. I can believe to the that. control group who did not receive the smart thermostats. Now we dug into those data and what we find is it's because the humans are undoing the defaults or the presets yes. that the factory had set. And they were undoing them in exactly a way that would undo all of the benefits from the smart thermostats. So you have to recognize you're selling this good or the government is trying to give away this good into a market of consumers who are dumb humans. They're not Commander Spock. And you have to have the product set up for that kind of situation. Otherwise, it's not working. It's not going to scale. Silicon Valley has just figured out a little bit. So at Lyft, we always make sure that every change we make is user-friendly. Yes. And that the average consumer gets it. Some firms do this naturally. Some don't. But if you don't, when you scale, you're in big trouble. It sounds like a simple thing. I'm one of those people who actually don't think those smart thermostats are very smart because when you first see it, you have no idea how to use it. That's right. It's designed in a way that makes no sense. And you like play around with this thing. They could have just said, if you want to save money, keep the setting. Do not override the setting. <laughs> they should have said that, but they don't tell you this. <laughs> 100%. They designed it for Commander Spock. And I have one in my house. And guess what? I'm Homer Simpson. Yeah. I undid the whole thing because <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. And I didn't want to read the 23 pages of instructions to get to the point that said, just leave it alone. It will be fine for you. I can tell you a very funny story about this, right? I was living in Vegas. It's the middle of summer. And I went to Atlanta. And somehow it set my thermostat so that it was giving off heat in the middle of a Vegas summer. <laughs> I come back from Atlanta, I get home and I think, what is going on here? It took about four hours to cool the house down. <laughs> four hours and a half of a power plant's capacity. Exactly, it's house. unbelievable. And then there was another time we had a freak snowstorm somewhere. I wasn't in uh, Vegas and I think I was in LA. Uh, it was not a snowstorm, it was a cold snap. And I set this to maximum heat and somehow, on the same day every year, the thermostat remembers you got to go to maximum heat on this day. <laughs> doesn't matter what's happening outside. And I don't know how to undo this thing. It does it every year. <laughs> and same in Vegas. Every year in the middle of summer, it goes to maximum setting. <laughs> now, now, look, you've just invented a new product. We should make sure to do that on our wedding anniversaries or our partner's birthdays. Because then we'd be reminded we won't get in as much trouble. That's actually true. But there's a great example whereby you're designing for a market that doesn't exist. 
Exactly. These are two smart people. And you see that all the time. So let's get to the example of spillovers, right? What's yeah. the, the other attributes? What's a good example of how a company or a government is understanding spillover effects? Yeah, yeah. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, on one extreme is what, what happened in the United States in the 1960s when the federal government was talking about making seatbelts mandatory in automobiles. Yeah. So they were basically looking at data and what they were observing is there are way too many traffic fatalities. And they said, look, if we put in seatbelts, we're gonna save a lot of lives. So they put in seatbelts and they did save lives, but they saved many fewer than what they had expected. And they say fewer because of this really interesting unintended consequence, which in, in essentially, it's, it's sort of interesting. People started to drive more aggressively when they were wearing a seatbelt. Oh, yes. Than when they didn't have a seatbelt. So this undid some of the good stuff. My colleague here at the University of Chicago, Sam Peltzman, documented this and now that effect is called the Peltzman effect. It's always beware of humans who might undo some of the good stuff of your idea. Okay, that, that's, that's one extreme. The other extreme, again, and there are a few in between examples that I talk about in the book, but the other extreme is what happened to me at Uber. So what happened at Uber was sort of instructive about a market. So turn back the clock to January 27th of 2017, and President Trump puts out an executive order on an immigration policy. People went nuts back then. In fact, the taxicab drivers around JFK were going so nuts that they decided to go on strike. Mm -hmm. They decided to go on strike because they wanted to send a message to the White House yes. that they did not agree with that executive order. So Uber essentially, as they always do when there's a national emergency or something big happens in a market, they turned off surge. And for all you non-Uber users, what turn off surge means is whenever demand outstrips supply mm -hmm. in a market, prices naturally go up and then consumers pay more. So Uber turned off that feature because they didn't want to be viewed as price gougers. However, a taxi cab driver took offense to that move and they thought that Uber was actually turning off surge to try to break up their strike. So this taxi cab driver went to Twitter and did hashtag delete Uber. And that caused an amazing amount or amazing effect on the rideshare market in America. Back then, I was the chief economist at Uber, and we had Lyft dead on the mat. They only had like 5 or 7% of market share back then in America. Yes. And we were just killing them. But the delete Uber campaign gave them new life. And that new life, now Lyft has 30 35% of the market. But at the time, Travis came to me, Travis Kalanick, the CEO and founder, came to me and said, it's your responsibility to help get the drivers back on the platform. So what I did is 
my team was called Team Ubernomics at Uber. We decided to make a push to put tipping, the uh, availability to give tips from riders to drivers inside the app. So you're the guy we got to blame for that. You can blame me for that. Blame you for that. <laughs> I'm responsible. So so I convinced the ELT with with some help. I, I had some friends with powerful friends within Uber that were helping, but this was meant to try to get drivers back online. So because it was my inspiration, my team was responsible for rolling it out that summer, the summer of 2017, and we started beta testing it. And what you find is if you take 5% of drivers yeah. and you give them the chance to receive tips, it's great. Their wages go up, they work more hours, and they're paid more per hour. So it's great. It's a win, win, win. Now, when we allowed all drivers, 100% of the drivers to receive tips, an interesting dynamic happened. Um, a, a bunch more drivers worked more, yeah. but they ended up working so much more that they were driving around with an empty car so much more often that they undid all of the good tip effect on wages. Yes. So the hourly wage stayed the same is before tipping is after everyone who received tipping. So the marketplace dynamic itself undid all of the good stuff that we were trying to put in the market. That's another kind of spillover that I talk about in the voltage effect. That's interesting. So what is the definition of a spillover? How would we define it? Yeah, I think of a spillover is any effect from one person to another that influences what your program is trying to do. I like that. I have an example. I remember once we were advising a um, consumer products company and they wanted to lower their prices, but they weren't trying to start a price war. They were trying to lower their prices to give something back to consumers mm -hmm. on their 25th anniversary of operating in this country. And they're trying to do something well. And I remember this very smart lady from the UK said, hey, hold on a second. How is our competitors going to respond to this? And people said, well, they're not going to worry. They, they, they know what we're doing. But the thing is, they didn't know what we were doing. And they saw it as everyday low pricing. It's a price war. Yeah. And they have lower marginal costs of production. So they could fight a price. And what do you think they did? They just yeah. undercut this company for five years and drove them out of the market. <laughs> And that's a great example where if you just went and spoke to the competitor and said, we're not starting a price war. We're starting a promotional campaign to reward consumers for five months. And then we're going to bring the prices back. It would have been a totally different outcome. Now, that's a very good spillover. That's story. a great, great example of a spillover. Absolutely. What, what was that firm, by the way? Can you remind me? I'd love this story. We, we can't mention the firm's name uh, uh, because rats. it's a consulting client. <laughs> but it's one of the big two. So it's not hard to figure out which one's involved there. Right? But, but the thing is that we take for granted how external players are going to respond. In a, a classic example of this, when I was a, a consulting partner, we'd present a strategy to a client. And the one thing I'd always tell the client is, remember, I don't know how the competitors are going to react when you roll this out. And the strategy becomes moot as soon as they start reacting, because we don't know. We can guess, 
but we don't know. And you know, that's one of the reasons I always advise CEOs to talk to competitors, know what they are thinking. Because if you just come up with something, you don't know what the game plan is going to be once they start responding to this. No, I think your point's right. Now, now too much talking, of course, can be yes, a collusion. <laughs> but you know what? What's interesting is in the world of machine learning and AI, yeah. we've been exploring how does the other machine respond to our price changes? That's interesting. And in that, in some cases, you can map out what's called the response surface. So as long as the machine doesn't change or, or go to a new regime, yes, you can, with proper experimentation, you can map out what the other sides or other, if it's a triopoly, the other two or whatever, oligopoly, um, you can map out what response surfaces look like. And then, then the optimal pricing problem becomes a little bit easier. Yes. It, it's hard when you don't know the regime or, or what the whether the response surface will change, which it always, of course, can by executive order. But um, I think with AI and machine learning, it's going to bring in a different set of tools and considerations, and you might have to do a little bit less talking to yes. get to an optimal price. Yeah, so in a manner of speaking, it's AI gives you the range of options out there of how the counterpart is likely to respond. Am I interpreting that correctly? I think that's right, especially if the other side is responding with an algorithm. Yes. Rather than a human randomly putting in numbers, which is sort of like what an executive does, right? Back in the day. Yeah. Um, like, how do you know what to price? Um, a lot of times people just do cost plus, when really they should be thinking about not only the cost, but also what the demand curve looks like and what our competitor will do in response. That's like the complete pricing. Now, when you have a machine, on the other side, that machine in many cases is much more predictable, is my point. It's interesting you should say that. I was speaking to Ram Charan. Uh, I spoke to him twice recently. And he was explaining to me that's how Amazon works. The algorithm sets the price based on what it's scraping off competitor websites. There's no okay. human sitting there. And there's no person sitting and saying, well, this is going to be the price. No, the algorithm says, okay, do based on what we know and based on what the competitor is offering, this is what we think the price is going to be. So you're saying that it is possible to figure out how the algorithm works and how it's likely to respond because it's, there's some logic that sits behind it. Absolutely, but not 100%. I think Amazon probably has to deal with inventory issues yes. and expected demand as well that, that adds to those things Absolutely. that you mentioned. But, but you can get, um, let's say, further down the track yeah. uh, than at once we could. Yes. Basically, we have better tools at knowing what the other party is going to do. Now, coming back to the last principle you laid out, what's a good example to explain that principle? Yeah, absolutely. So, so this is a supply side. And, you know, one way to think about it is let's go back to my Chicago Heights example. Yes. In Chicago Heights, I started a preschool and I had to hire 30 teachers. So what I found there was I needed good teachers to make sure I had impact on kids' lives. Yes. So if I have to hire 30,000 good teachers and I make sure that the quality stays the same as the first 30, 
what am I going to have to do to wages? What's going to happen to my budget if yes. now I have to hire 30,000 of these really good people? Well, I'm going to have to pull some from Wall Street. I'm going to have to pull some from Silicon Valley. I'm going to have to pull some from Citadel Trading because I'm going to need high quality people. And guess what? I'm going to have to pay them more. That means essentially I'm going up the supply curve. I'm going up the supply curve because to maintain quality and to get it in mass, I have to keep raising the wage that I'm paying the workers. That's diseconomies of scale because I have this unique input, call it yes. a really good teacher, and to hire more and more of them in the same input market, I have to increase the wages of all of them basically. So now I have a problem because I have an idea that on the benefit side is maintaining voltage. These kids are getting great stuff, but I'm getting killed on the supply side because my idea revolves around an input that I have an increasing supply curve over or a long run average total cost curve that is increasing. Now, that's a great example. And we can see it today in the news, right? Citibank just announced their strategy. And they decided not to compete in investment banking because the cost yeah. of bringing in those talented investment bankers in a year where we had the biggest fees ever, 2021, you just can't compete against yeah. Goldman Sachs. You can't compete against Morgan Stanley. If they decide to scale investment banking, the cost of bringing in the bankers to do the deal would be so high that at least for the next two or three years, it's uneconomical for them. A absolutely. So the supply side dictates... We just can't do it. I mean, HSBC did the same thing. They pulled out of investment banking for that reason. Barclays did the same thing, scaled back. And it's a good example. I think the, the part about the supply side is something we don't often think about because you think about management consulting and business, we sort of adopt many of the principles that came from Ford and GM yeah. assembly lines. And it's a given that if you get size, you get scale because we think bigger is always going to lead to economies of scale. It's a default mindset. And oftentimes you got to step back and say, but does it lead to economies of scale? Sure. No, that's exactly right. We typically think of economies of scale as a big fixed cost. Yes. I spend a lot of money on a building or a lot of money on land. And then I have to grow because I want to spread that fixed cost over more units of production. And, and when I do that, of course, it's great. Now that model is typically under the idea that the variable cost stays constant. Yes. That I can hire as much labor at the high quality uh, person that I want for the same good price. And anytime you face an upward sloping labor supply curve rather than a, a flat one, um, you're not in that kind of business. Yes, I remember doing a study for a national post office and they were looking at what do they do to the Korean freight unit? Because that's the only part that was making money. And they came up with a strategy whereby they said that, look, we have the infrastructure, we have the base, so all we got to do is get the volume, right? Okay, good enough, but they didn't factor in the, the point that when Amazon entered the market, they sucked in all of the drivers yeah. and paid them a premium and gave them a van. Yeah. And how do you get drivers when you can't compete against Amazon? And then a classic example of what you're saying, the supply side costs went through the roof yeah. and it... If the, even if they could get the volume, the cost of getting the volume moving through the infrastructure just made them unprofitable. Yep, absolutely.
So this is a, a good way to think about it. Now, how does an executive keep this in his or her mind or a business leader or a politician? Because the default is once they stop listening to this podcast, two days later, they're going to default to what's around them. They're going to default to the thinking of their social network, their peers. So yeah. if someone was making a decision on how to make things scale, what would you ask them to do as maybe the, the top five things that they must keep in mind when they're thinking this through? Yeah, ab absolutely. So I would first of all say you need to eschew this idea of evidence-based policy and adopt a policy-based evidence approach. And what I, like I mean that. by that is think about what you're scaling into, what the market looks like, and make sure that your idea can work in that market. For policymakers, this is like policy-based evidence. Now, I also want the business person to know that scaling is not about a silver bullet. Uh, rather, it's a weakest link problem or what I call an Anna Karenina problem. So take yourself back to Tolstoy. The first yeah. sentence says, happy families are all alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Scalable ideas are all alike. Each unscalable idea is unscalable in its own way. But I give you the checklist. I give yes. you the five vital signs. If I'm a if I'm a manager, I put those five vital signs right next to me. And I say, you know, does this idea meet all of these? Do I have voltage? Is a sample right? Is a situation right? What about the spillovers? What about the supply side? When I check all of these, remember, it's a weakest link problem. And what I mean by that is think about an airplane. The airplane is only as safe is the weakest link in the security chain. If you have a weak link, the airplane is in trouble for its safety. An idea is only as safe as its weakest link. Anna Corinna, a problem, not a best shot problem. So, so number two, I would say, have that checklist. Yes. Number three, I would say, when you build a culture, it starts with the very first job ad you place. So, Culture is one of these words that's hard to define. We know it matters. And when we see it, we know it's working or not. So I think when you talk about a diverse workforce or the gender pay gap, yes, I talk about that throughout the book about how we, from the very beginning, we can set up the way we write our job ads. And that helps you build the culture that you want. Number four would be incentives are about much more than just dollars. So what I mean by that is in many cases, you can use behavioral economics or non-financial incentives, right? As a chapter in the book, I talk about tipping and why do people tip more when somebody's watching them versus when they're not being watched? Or why does somebody do something great for the company more often when somebody else can see it rather than in a tunnel? So th there are a lot of ways we can set up our organizations to make sure that we use incentives that can scale. A lot of incentives aren't scalable. Non-pecuniary incentives are scalable. And then finally, the fifth one would be, you know, be aware because spillovers are everywhere and understand when you make choices that there will be spillovers 
And it's not difficult to see. It doesn't take perfect foresight to see which way the spillovers will likely go. And there are ways that you can gather data to determine whether these spillovers will be important or not. I like that. I mean, the framework that you presented, which is voltage, then the sample, can you scale into the situation, spillover effects, understand the supply side of things, is a powerful way to think about it. And it's actually very simple if you think about it. It's very like simple. In, it's very simple. It's um, almost, you know, from a management consulting background, we borrow the principles of economics. Yeah. But we tend to not spend so much time on the sampling side and not to spend so much time understanding how stakeholders are going to react. We tend to assume that if you just have the right strategy for the business, the leaders of the business who are implementing the strategy will be able to manage competitors and so on. And that's not always the case. You need to take that into consideration. You have to understand the capability of the leaders who are going to be implementing the advice. You know, that's a great point. When, when you think about many cases where there are voltage drops, it's that in the Petri dish, we gave a pink pill. But when we scaled it, we ended up giving a blue pill. And it happens in part because of political will. Yeah. The people who are implementing or actually carrying it out either can't give the pink pill because some kind of institutional constraint, or they won't give the pink pill because they don't believe in it, or they, there's a different reason for nearly every example. But the fidelity of what worked in the Petri dish going up to scale in many cases involves a human that is undoing the exact secret sauce that they yes. should be giving to people. Yeah, that's always the case, whereby it's almost as if an experiment was done and then nobody looks at what's being put into the market. They just assume that we did the experiment, it worked, everyone's gonna know what needs to be packaged and rolled out. It's almost a common problem you see across every single company. That's John, thank exactly you so right. much. I'm actually, I've actually read your book, The Voltage Effect. I would recommend people buy your latest book. I thought it was very, very clever. And the simple way it introduced new concepts you need to take into consideration. Thank you so much. And, and thanks for having me. It was great chatting about the book. Thank you so much. It was a great podcast. I think our audience is going to love it. We'll definitely be in touch and we'll chat soon. Awesome. Thanks again for having me. Take care, John. Ciao. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.